has been taking some time in the closing parts of his letter to the Hebrews and to us to give us practical application for those of us who are believers and how then we are now to live. And he's gone through a number of things and he's going to continue on. And so we're at chapter 13, verse 7. He's going to continue on in this practical application. And verse 7 says, Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. Now I'm glad that the scriptures here refer to that you are to imitate those who led you. Notice it didn't say those who are leading you. So you're not supposed to necessarily imitate me because I haven't led you. I am leading you. And subject to the grace of God, I could stumble and fall and not finish my race. So you're to look to those who have finished their course and that you know that they were rock solid from the time that they dealt with you until they had finished the course. And so we're to take those who have taught us the word of God and we are to imitate their conduct. Now, children frequently imitate many things. They'll imitate their parent. Um, I remember my niece one time was taking a bath at her grandmother's house. And I was there and she was in the bath and she had a little baby and she was spanking the behind and said, now you behave. And I figured that she got that from her mother. And so children do. And then they're, you know, for instance, uh, oftentimes uh, children will imitate soldiers or police officers or firemen. Uh, usually they imitate those people who do things and are brave. And hopefully in that imitation, they become those qualities. When my first grandson was born, our drummer then gave him a drum. Now he was too young to play the drum, but that's because our drummer loved drums. And so he gave my grandson a drum. And when he was old enough, he would bang on it. So his grandmother and I decided that when he was about three or so, uh, that we would give him a little small drum set. Now, because little small drum sets make noise, his parents didn't take it to their house. They left it at our house because they didn't want to hear the noise. But, you know, grandparents are much more sympathetic. And so he would beat on the drums. And then what he would do is he would look at his grandmother and his great aunt and say, you sing. And then they would sing and he would bang on the drums. And after he finished banging on the drums, he would point to me and say, you pray. And we would do this several times during the time and several times over the course of a period of time. And all of that time, he always said, you pray. He never asked me to preach. So I don't know if that was kind of advanced warning and maybe that wasn't my strong point or what, but he would never ask me to preach. But he was imitating church. But he doesn't imitate church anymore. Why? Because he does church. He sings. He participates. He is a part of the body of Christ. And not only him, but his brother as well. And so you go from imitating something to doing something. As they say, imitation is the greatest form of flattery. 
We are to imitate Jesus. Now, unfortunate reason he says imitate those leaders is in my many years of experience, including me, I've never met anybody like Jesus. I've met people who've been a little bit like him, and I've met other people who've been a little more like him, but I haven't met anybody like Jesus. So we imitate those things of the qualities of our leaders, our spiritual leaders, who do what Jesus does. It gives us an example to follow. So he tells us that we are to do that, considering the, the conduct, imitate their faith. So they believe God when it was difficult. Therefore, I will believe God when it's difficult. Verse 8 goes on to say, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. And that's true. And we love to take that verse out of the context and say, because it is a truism, it is a true statement, but there is a context to it. And so we're to imitate those who have taught us the Word of God and who act like the Word of God. But then it says Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever because Jesus doesn't change. Circumstances may change. Cultures may change. Fads may change. But Jesus doesn't change. He has instructed us that we are to love one another as he has loved us. He doesn't become less lovable because or loving because of the culture. He has called us that we are to bear fruit. We are to bear fruit. It doesn't matter how difficult the culture is or how extreme things are around us. We are to develop and produce fruit. He has told us, as we've saying, to forgive as we have been forgiven. We expect great forgiveness, but oftentimes only want to give little forgiveness in return. But he is, and it doesn't change. It doesn't matter. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And the reason it's in there is because of verse 9. Do not be carried away by varied and strange teachings. For it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, through which those who were so occupied were not benefited. So he says, Jesus is the same. There are strange and new teachings. Don't follow them. Follow what Jesus has taught. And I'm, I get frustrated because I, I hear various people. And one of the things that frustrates me, frustrates me is I'll hear people say, I want to hear a new word. But if Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever, what do you need a new word for? Because he's been the same. He isn't doing anything new. He's doing what he's been doing. In the Old Testament, God has been doing what God does, and he didn't change programs in the New Testament. He just revealed more of who he is. He is the same from Adam and Eve until the last person is born and he comes again. He is who he is and he doesn't change. And we need to be careful in this quote-unquote strange because even things that sound good can lead you astray. Now, I'll give you one of my pet peeves. Prayer. People will talk about the power of prayer. And I know I have, this is not the first time I've said it, but I'm, 
It's a pet peeve of mine. People will talk about the power of prayer. Now, if you ask me, you should pray more and I should pray more. I'm not leveling a charge against prayer. I think prayer is a good thing. Matter of fact, I wish I could do what it was um, accounted of Martin Luther did. Martin Luther once said, I am so busy today. I have so much to do. I don't know how I'm going to get it all done. As a matter of fact, I have so much to do. It will require five hours of prayer to get it done. Most of us might spend five minutes and then try to spend the rest of the day doing whatever we're doing. I believe that prayer is essential for the believer. But it is not the power of prayer. It is the power of God. So to give you an example that you might, let's say that I'm driving my vehicle. Now I'm going to change it around. Yeah, I'm driving my vehicle. And I, and I have a requirement that, you know, I either have a flat tire or my, my car stops working. So I take my cell phone and I call you. And I say, you know, I'm stuck on the 405. My car isn't working. Would you come and help me out? Would you come and see if you can fix my car? If not, at least give me a ride so I can find somebody to fix the car. And you say, sure, I'll come. And then you come and you help me fix the car and I get it running. And then what I do is say, wow, this cell phone is awesome. This cell phone is great. I was able to get my car fixed. And you're going, wait a minute. I'm the one who came. I'm the one who fixed the car. What? The cell phone is just the mechanism that lets you call me. But that's what we do. We praise the self. We praise prayer rather than God who hears and does. Do not cheapen God. Even good things can take away from the glory of God. Good things, new things, crazy things. And people have a wild imagination and they will take new stuff and they'll take old stuff and they'll try to syncretize the word of God with the scriptures. And he's telling us, don't do that. It is Jesus' teaching that we follow. So we are not to be carried away by varied and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace. Now, grace on us, we all we frequently think grace is an unmerited favor, and it is. But grace is more than just our salvation, for you have been saved by grace through faith. That not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. But Paul, when Paul was praying, and and I keep saying that Paul must have been very fortunate because apparently God answered his prayers kind of quickly. Because he goes, you know, I prayed three times. Man, I've I've prayed a number of times, and God still hasn't answered. Or maybe his answer, I just don't like the answer. But Paul goes, I've prayed three times that he would take this thorn from my flesh. And God's response was, my grace is, is sufficient for you. He places his unmerited favor on all of our lives, not just our salvation, but our whole lives. It's his grace strengthens us. So we are to be strengthened by grace and not by food. Because again, food, like I said, is an appetite. 
And he states here, for which those who are so occupied were not benefited. You can spend hours thinking about what it is you're going to eat for dinner. And you can go to the store and buy the greatest meal. And then you can prepare it or have somebody else prepare it. And it can be delicious. And it can be so awesome that you say, I've never had another meal like it until breakfast. And you're hungry. And that meal didn't satisfy and didn't last. The writer here is telling us, food is temporary. But the grace of God strengthens you. You may not be hungry for a moment, but your strength will wane in the eating of food. But the strength will never be diminished when you are there. We have an altar from which those who serve at the tabernacle have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as an offering for sin are burned outside the camp. Now the writer is saying, we have a different altar. There was an altar, and he's going to go back to the tabernacle because that's the symbol of heaven. The pattern of the tabernacle was the pattern of the temple in heaven. The temple on, in Jerusalem was not patterned after the temple in heaven. So he goes back and he says, the high priest would go to the altar, of in, of the altar, the brazen altar, and they would sacrifice the animal there. And they would place and burn the animal, but they would take the blood and they would take it to the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies twice, once a year for the sins of the high priest and then the sins of the people. But they didn't have a right to eat it because they burned the carcass of the animal and they brought the blood into the Holy of Holies. They were excluded from participation in it. We're not like them. He says, therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. What he's telling us is Jesus, when he was crucified, was not crucified in the tabernacle. He wasn't suffered and crucified in the temple area. They took him outside of Jerusalem on top of Mount Golgotha, the place of the skull. And there he was crucified. He was crucified as if he was a criminal. He was not holy. But that sacrifice of his was the as if it was the burnt offering, except there's a difference. Because where there is some confusion, people say, well, this altar they're talking about is the, the altar of the uh, communion. No, the altar is, in my humble opinion, is the cross. But we're allowed to eat at that altar, and as a matter of fact, are instructed to eat his body and to drink his blood. We participate in that sacrifice. The high priest and those who did that under the Old Testament were only there to serve. Jesus, we're there to participate, and we come to the altar of the cross, not the altar of the table. And he sanctified the people. He made us holy. Sanctification is the process of making us 
He didn't say that he might sanctify the people through his blood and suffered outside the gate. So, so because of that, let us go out to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. Yes, it's wonderful to come and worship. And yes, it's good for us to praise him and to sing praises. But this is not where we're to stay. We're to go out into the world, not to be in the world. We're to be in the world, but not of the world. And we're to go there and to tell people about his sacrifice and his shame. We're to go outside the camp to bear his reproach. Now, when the writer of Hebrews was writing this, the reproach was a little different. Because the society was very um, aware that it was religious. The problem was it was just religious in a different area. They believed in a bunch of different gods and all these different things and sacrificed a whole bunch of people. And as a matter of fact, Christians originally, especially in the Roman times, were viewed as atheists because we only believed in one God. They believed in a whole panoply of God. So we were accused of being, and so there was a reproach that Christians bore because they thought we were less than them and were qualified to be persecuted. Today, our culture doesn't think it's religious, but it worships all kinds of stuff. It just isn't a, it, just, it thinks it's irreligious, but it's very religious. But it then castigates those of us who are believers. How do they do that? You need a Christ. You need to believe in something you can't. You need to believe, and, and so you, you're, you have a God of the gap. You don't understand something, you're, you put God there. They insult us, and they insult our intelligence. The interesting thing is the scriptures all the way back in the Old Testament says, a fool says in his heart there is no God. So they're the ones that aren't wise, whatever. But they, they accuse up of all this weakness and all this stuff. And as Paul says, I would rather be weak in Christ. I would rather be considered foolish in the name of Christ. Bearing his reproach. So when our kids go to college and they say, how can you believe these things? And isn't it obvious that the world is millions of years, billions of years old and all these things? They have, they have no grounding in which to, so they say, well, maybe they're right. And they retreat. Rather than giving them firm foundation to know exactly why they believe what they believe, and it is not blind faith, it is a response to the word of God. So we are to bear his reproach. For here, we do not have a lasting city, but are seeking the city which is to come. In essence, you may think you're taking a risk. I'm going to go out there and they're going to reject me. Well, you're in good company because they rejected Jesus. But the writer here is saying, you've got nothing to, 
lose. Because you don't have a home. It ain't here. It's not permanent. It will be taken away, and you won't be living here anyway. Because after, if you're fortunate, I don't know if that's a correct word, if you're fortunate to live to be 100, again, I don't know if that's fortunate or not, um, you're still going to be gone after a period of time. This isn't a permanent and your body, not even rented. So you're risking nothing by going out and bearing the reproach of Jesus. Because what is here is impermanent. But we are seeking the city which is. We're seeking the new dream. That's why. We Christians, if and when we participate in Passover, Jews will say, next year in Jerusalem. We say, next year, God willing, in the new Jerusalem. We're not looking for the place that is subject to wars, hatred. We're looking for God to be king, the king of kings and Lord of lords. And that is a permanent city. So to sum this up, imitate those who've led you in the faith. Understand that Jesus doesn't change. So don't be tempted to follow strange and new teachings. Because Jesus doesn't Be aware that you have a right to be at his altar, the cross. Not because you deserve it, but because he loved you that. You couldn't participate in the Day of Atonement when the high priest would go because none of us were high priests. We never got to participate. But all of us who are believers get to go to the altar of the cross and eat of his body and his blood. Because he's sanctified us. He's made us holy. So we are not to stay here. We're to go and proclaim what he's done. Because we take no risk. Because this ain't home. Therefore, it is a cross that allows to do these things. It is a cross that gives us forgiveness. It is the cross that causes us to be children of the living God. It is the cross that makes us sanctified, holy. It is the cross that one day will allow us to be in heaven. It is the cross that will allow us to have access not just to a tabernacle, not just to a courtyard where men and women and Gentiles and all were segregated, but where we can go even now, the scripture says, that we can go into the Holy of Holies 
and make our requests known to God. That we might find grace and help in time of need. It's because of the cross that that veil was ripped in two that we have access. We need to fall down at that altar and say, thank you. Thank you for the cross. That was a symbol of shame to those who watched. Even of those who don't quite understand what God was doing there. But for us, it is the power and grace and love of God. And all God's people said.